Hello, I'm Harry Kresa, the Basevich Fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and I'm here with Patrick Cronin, Senior Director of our Asia-Pacific Security Program. Patrick, the Chinese Communist Party just wrapped up its 19th uh, Party Congress. What did we learn during this process, and what does it mean for the future of U.S.-China relations? Well, Harry, I think we learned what the world already knew, which was that Xi Jinping is the paramount leader of China and that he is riding a crest, a wave right now of momentum in his leadership, so much so that we're not even sure whether he will extend his tenure into a third term out to 2027. The speculation continues to run even more so after this party congress than before. Um, but whether he's only in for a second five-year term or going to be signed on to a third, he is the most important political figure in China. I think there's time for a pause here, though, in that a lot of the hype that he is the most powerful man since Mao, that he has put himself into the constitution of China, um, we probably need to remember our history about Mao and just how ruthless Mao was versus how more technocratic Xi Jinping is. Um, it was Mao who said that if there were not a lion on the mountaintop, then the monkeys would be king of the beasts. Uh, and, and, and Mao told his wife, I am the king. I'm the king of the beasts. Uh, you don't get the sense that Xi Jinping is uh, quite as Machiavellian and ruthless, although I don't want to underestimate uh, what it takes to, to manage China. Um, so without being worried about... Uh, the ruthlessness of Xi Jinping versus Mao, I think it is fair to be concerned about how much power he is accumulating. And the question many Americans, and I think many in the region throughout the Indo-Pacific have, um, really where are the reformers? Where are the political and economic reformers now after the 19th Party Congress? And here there's a lot of reason for concern. And whether you want to look at the Hong Kong bookseller or you want to look at just the internal oppression or internet controls, um, there is a, a great deal of concern that the reform movements within China under Xi Jinping are being um, squeezed. And with this power that he now has and that all expected him to have, um, you really wonder about how he's going to use that newfound power. So the good is that he's not Mao. He is as powerful in, in terms of any other leader since Mao. But it has come at a price, and the price has been uh, making Xi so all-powerful that the reform movements within China have largely stalled or seem to be in hiding. Do you think that we can expect any changes in Chinese behavior, strategically speaking, uh, following the Party Congress now that this consolidation has taken place? I think the idea that Xi Jinping is more risk-acceptant, more willing to use China's newfound economic and military muscle, comprehensive power, really, um, continue. I don't think this is, is brand new. It's not new just out of the 19th Party Congress, but I think it gets a new boost out of the 19th Party Congress. He really uh, wants to exercise China's global role. He talked about this, whether it was the China dream out to the middle of the century, uh, thinking about China's playing center stage in the world, to thinking about the various instruments of power economically, but also militarily, just how much China should be asserting itself. I think this has practical implications when you start to think about issues like Taiwan, 
um, when you think about the South China Sea, when you think about China's role in the East China Sea or on the Korean Peninsula or vis-a-vis India, I think here there are legitimate concerns that in the next few years, Xi Jinping, if tested uh, over sovereignty issues as he would define them, uh, that China may play a surprisingly assertive role in exercising their power for the purpose of uh, following up with what they think is now their uh, regained stature in the world as a, as a major power. Well, uh, in light of that new stature and fresh off of the heels of this uh, party congress, what should we expect from President Trump's upcoming trip to the region, both to China and to uh, other spots uh, around Asia? Well, this is a defining moment for President Trump and for Asia strategy and policy. For the last nine months, the administration has dealt with so many different issues of transition. We've created a big hole for ourselves with respect to our economic posture, in particular after withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the the general banner of economic nationalism that's been waved around with America First, um, and at the same time, the uncertainty that the Trump administration has created some of it intentionally, but some of it very much inadvertently, about alliance commitments and about America's staying power and role in the Indo-Pacific region. So finally, with this presidential five-nation visit in November of 2017, President Trump has a golden opportunity to lay the foundation anew for the Trump administration's Asian strategy, the first post pivot Asian strategy, if you will, if you think about the nomenclature of the Obama administration, to an unnamed strategy, but one that essentially is adopting the language of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe about a a new and open Indo-Pacific region. And I think that's very much going to be at least the spirit of the Trump strategy that's at play here. So starting with Northeast Asian diplomacy, and there's no doubt that President Trump has emphasized Northeast Asia because it is the power center of the region still, but he's also emphasized new relations with India, just as President Obama and other presidents have been building that relationship. And he's trying to put major power and major powers at the, at the top of the agenda, um, whereas President Obama tried to give, I think, new uh, assertiveness to Southeast Asian relations that had been languishing, especially um, after 9-11 and after the focus on the Middle East. Um, President Trump ha- will go to Japan, and he'll meet a very like-minded ally in Prime Minister Abe. Uh, there's no doubt that the U.S.-Japan alliance is riding high, that they're going to work further to even integrate this relationship, and that Japan wants to play a larger role so much so that Japan is likely to even revise its constitution to allow it to play a more normal role as a military power. Economically, whether Japan and the United States can carve together a bilateral free trade agreement or at least harvest out from the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement chapters that lead to a bilateral agreement remain to be seen. And even if it does happen, I doubt it can happen quickly. I think it takes time to do that. But I think both of them will talk about that issue at the summit. When President Trump gets to Korea, apparently going to Camp Humphreys, which is the new base that the United States has been working on building with the South Korean government and South Korean government support um, outside of uh, Seoul, on the coast. Uh, And I think there, the president will give a major speech about the security commitment of the United States, not just 
to the alliance with Korea, our alliance with Japan, but also our security role in the region. But he'll also, I think, have an opportunity to talk about the need for a positive vision, a diplomatic outcome of what is becoming an increasingly tense nuclear standoff with North Korea. When he goes to China, he'll be looking to cash in on the pressure strategy that has put pressure on Beijing to do more. And I think here the word out of China is that they do want to put more pressure on North Korea, if only because their economic interests are now at stake because of secondary sanctions that are being imposed from Congress and from the administration. Um, I think there'll be a lot of discussion, though, about other issues, including uh, bilateral investment, including America's role in the region, the South China Sea, um, and cyber tensions and other issues that are um, uh, putting trade and investment at risk. I think China will try to protect the trade and investment that it has in the United States and in the region. Um, from Northeast Asia, the president goes to Vietnam, and here he has a, a huge opportunity um, at the APEC summit to set out some new trade and investment strategy that starts to fill in the big hole that developed because of the withdrawal from TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Here he needs to talk about not just bilateral trade and America's significant investment in the region and new opportunities in investment, but also he needs to consider the geopolitical implications of our economic ties through the Indo-Pacific. And I think he will do that there. Um, in the Philippines, his last stop before he heads back home, um, this is the 50th anniversary of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. It's also the annual East Asian Summit for which he may not stay, but at least he can um, uh, put a marker down that the United States is interested in the political security of, of the region. And whether it's the South China Sea or whether it's countering terrorism, like what Daesh has been able to do to insinuate their way into local sectarian uh, separatist conflicts in Mindanao, in the city of Marawi in particular, uh, I think there's a lot of potential there to grow the U.S.-Philippine alliance, but also regional cooperation. Singapore is in the chair of the ASEAN next year, and I think they can play a very helpful role in kind of regionalizing some of the initiatives that are being sought here by President Trump in the region. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's uh, definitely going to be a crucial month for American strategy in the Asia-Pacific and the world. It should keep us busy in 2018. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, this has been Patrick Cronin, the Senior Director of the Asia-Pacific Security Program here at CNAS.